Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. The boy was gone. Death had come for the baby, sudden and remorseless. All the hopes and desires and celebrations of fatherhood and the family's future were smashed in one searing moment of pain that went on and on and on. It was the fear of every parent that something would happen to their beloved child, and this was his firstborn son that he had lost at just six months old. His faith taught him that suffering like this was a kind of mystery. It had guided him this far, but faced with so much loss, he could only ask, in a world governed by justice, how could his baby boy be taken from him this way? It was a terrible and costly question burning its way into his heart. The rhythms and responsibilities of his life and the teachings and traditions of his youth, they offered no answers. Blind with pain and grief and loss, he set out from home. He left his devastated wife behind, and he took to the road. He went looking for answers. He traveled by foot. The questions would have plagued him for the weeks that it took to reach up into the Ural Mountains, that stone spine that split the Russian Empire in two. And he followed roads and tracks that stretched higher and higher for more than 300 miles. But he wasn't lost. He knew where he was going. He would bring his burning questions to one of the holiest places in Russia. He would bring them to the Monastery of St. Nicholas. It wasn't the only sacred place in its small town. In fact, it was surrounded by churches, but it was by far the most renowned. It had stood for centuries, and its holy men were legendary. Miracles had been worked there in the mountainous upper air. It was a place where God reached down and revealed himself. And for two generations, a great cathedral reached up from the rocks, the Cathedral of Transfiguration, where the massive bell spire and the bones of saints welcomed pilgrims from the four corners of the empire. But it wasn't the cathedral that called to the grieving father. No, in the face of a lost son, that grand display of power was as hollow as the home he had left behind. His eyes turned away from the church spire to the outskirts of the monastery grounds, to the border of the forest. It wasn't to the monks and the priests that the question would go. No, it was to the swineherd. It was in a small hut at the tree line that the hermit Macaray lived, and that is where the questions drove him, to the man renowned for holiness, simplicity, and spiritual wisdom. Seekers would later remember that Macaray's greatest delight seemed to be the chickens who shared his hut, and the words the hermit whispered to his small flock would have been comical if they weren't filled with so much power. So what was it that he said? Well, we know at least one thing. Macari would tell his visitors about his own suffering, the sorrows and misfortunes of my life, as he called them. If there was one thing that a grieving father could understand, it was sorrow and misfortune. So maybe it's no surprise that an encounter like this could change a man's life. When he was at his lowest point, 
Witnessing Macaray's devotion to God could become the model for a new way of being. His old life and its place in Russia could be left behind for a new way, the way of the pilgrim. And in this encounter with Macquarie, he felt the power of suffering to bring people together. Maybe that's what laid the cornerstone of the relationships that would later make this grieving father the most infamous religious wanderer in Russia and the world. Because having lost his son, he suffered what the Tsar and Tsarina most feared, the death of the imperial heir. Because, yes, the man who climbed mountains to find peace in the company of a religious hermit was named Grigory. He was a broken man, and over time he would be remade in Macquarie's image. That encounter in the mountain monastery after the death of his son was only the first time that Grigory would seek Macquarie's wisdom. Through wandering and revelation, his voice would echo down the mountains and into the ear of a royal couple desperate to keep their own fragile son alive. All of that, though, would come in time. But to get there, there would be many more dark days spent on winding roads, on his way to becoming Rasputin. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. It was a place for changing horses. At least if you were in a coach rattling along the Tura River between Tumin and Tobolsk. Anyone going that way, whether in search of prosperity or to some darker destination, was likely to make a stop, stretching their weary legs and make sure their beasts of burden could carry them the rest of the way. A dead horse goes nowhere, after all. So Pokrovska was the place of which journeys through old Russia were made. But from a stop on the road, Pokrovska grew into a town. A small town, anyway. It was a community of hunters, fishermen, and farmers, raising livestock, raising families, and scratching out a life from thy Siberian earth. All the better if you had something to offer the baggage trains traveling to and from Siberia's oldest city. And many of Pokrovska's families still found their living in the shipping trades. Men like Yefim and his son, Grigory. They had done fairly well in their work, too. On his land were the dozen cows and 18 horses that he had pulled together over the years. He started as a laborer among laborers, cutting hay and loading the boats that passed by on the river. But when he became a coachman himself, hired by the state to make the trips between Tumen and Tobolsk, things turned around. By peasant standards, at least, life was good. Things also turned around at home. You see, similarly, things started off with a kind of tragedy that was all too common. None of his first four children lived more than a few months. We can only imagine the pain that their mother, Anna, felt to bury so many babies. But in January of 1869, Yefim and Anna had a son who survived. It was the feast day of St. Gregory of Nyssa, so in honor of that ancient Christian mystic, they named their son Grigori. In the twists and turns of a difficult life, He was a divine blessing, the kind of miraculous gift that can't be explained and can only be received with gratitude. Why does one child live when four others have died? If Yefim and Anna couldn't answer that question, they could at least give thanks. 
Their son was growing up and growing strong. Sure, he had the typical struggles of a peasant boy. That one time he turned his teenage attitude against a local magistrate, it got Grigori thrown in jail. That must have put Anna's heart in a vice. But the boy was freed after just two days. After all, he was just 15. But it was also an early sign that Grigori would not be cowed by people with power. Other omens of his later life were likewise appearing. Around town, he got a bit of a reputation. As a bit of a troublemaker, a heavy drinker, someone for young women to steer clear of and for parents to whisper warnings about. But every town had one or two, right? It was hardly a story to write down in the history books. After all, he was just a young lout who worked with his father in the carriageman's trade. No doubt he helped his father break horses, handled the tack, and learned the power of a bit and bridle. But the means of managing horses wasn't the only set of rules he learned. In his teenage years, he was already making pilgrimages to the monasteries near his hometown, honoring the faith of his family, despite shrugging off its commands to temper his urges and impulses. If his mother hoped that a strong faith might help Grigori to grow out of his youthful indulgences, all the better in 1886 when he came home from celebrating a holy day feast and brought his family joyful news. He had met a peasant girl named Preskovia, and something had drawn the two together. By February of 1887, Grigori and Preskovia were married. Living in his hometown, in his father's house actually, Grigori now had a path laid out before him. A life of faith, family, work, and maybe something less palatable around the edges. The life of a Siberian peasant laborer. If he was lucky, his life would be as fortunate as his father's. Eighteen horses was nothing to sneer at. But Grigori's misfortunes also followed his father's. His little son died of scarlet fever. If Yefim and Anna had somehow made their peace with the grief of losing children, it seems the pain sent Grigori out the door and on his search for answers. That journey was the first step on his new path, but it was far from the end of his old life. He would later say that for a while his life continued on as before. And by all accounts, it's true. At the monastery in the mountains, he was comforted by Macquarie. But he went back to his family, his hometown, and his life there. He went back to work, too. Sometimes as a coachman, sometimes fishing the rivers, sometimes farming. It was a peasant life, but a pleasant one, too. Grigori and Preskovia even had more children together. As time passed, it seemed like maybe Grigori's renewed faith from his monastery pilgrimage had prepared him to endure the life he was born into. It seemed like maybe Grigori would follow in his father's footsteps. But after more than a decade of this life, something changed. He had an awakening. The story is unclear, and it's wrapped in contradictory legends, as anything is about this man. Some say that he took another religious pilgrimage, accompanying a young priest, and the man convinced Grigori to take up the life of a holy pilgrim. Some say that Rasputin went on the run from the law for stealing horses. His daughter Maria would later put it this way. One day, when he was plowing a field, he came to the end of a row. Looking up, a stunning light blinded him, as the figure of the Virgin Mary passed in front of the sun and looked down on the man. He blinked to try to clear his head, but she only smiled and raised her hand, gesturing to the horizons. She told Grigori what he needed to do, leave his little Siberian town and put his feet on a new path. 
Rasputin himself, in his only published book, would say that he was simply restless, tired of peasant life, and feeling a growing thirst for spiritual knowledge. Whatever the motivation, the change was sudden and real. He stopped drinking, stopped smoking, and stopped eating meat. In every aspect of his life, he tried to follow the path of men like Makari. Even more important for his family, he left home. With only the clothes on his back and the shoes on his feet, Grigory Rasputin set out to cross the Russian Empire from chapel to chapel and town to town to plumb the depths of the great spiritual mysteries. He started to wander. And then, he started to teach. He learned it on the road. A lot of what he saw reminded him of home. Peasants everywhere, harvesting, building, plowing, and planting. He crossed Siberia on foot, and it was grueling. He would go days without food, weeks or months without a change of clothes. He was sometimes robbed of what little he had. He would later say that he had even been hunted by wolves. But to Grigori, these were not the worst enemies he faced. No, like other saints and mystics before him, Grigori says that he was hunted by spiritual enemies— the devil attacked him over and over, and demons opposed him at every step. They tried, he would say, to pull him away from God, to make him give up, to make him give in to temptations. But Grigori had the weapons to battle them, too. He beat himself to fight off the temptations of the flesh and wrapped his legs in chains to slow his walk, a reminder and a punishment for his sins. In Grigori's mind, the road became a battlefield. But it's not like Grigori only met enemies through his wandering. In fact, there were plenty of people who would have welcomed him along the way. He found friends and allies in his quest for revelation. There were people who would open their doors to him and ask him to share what he had learned. After all, he was just one of many Russian wanderers that God had sent out into the world. Here's historian Helen Coleman to tell us more. There was a great tradition in Russian life of welcoming pilgrims, of welcoming holy people who traveled to shrines, who traveled from village to village, living on donations. These were people who were religious searchers, who were trying to become the person that God had made them to be. And so there was great respect for that sort of religious traveler. It was a life of work and wandering and a life of little rest. Later, he would write, Everything was interesting to me, good and bad. And he had so much to learn. He wasn't seeking knowledge from books and from sages. No, that was the worst way to answer the questions that he was trying to answer. The learned, Grigori wrote, do not go to God. They study everything by books, and that knowledge confuses them. It was just one of the many reasons that he didn't want to become a priest— after all, he said he met many who failed to live up to their responsibilities. He had thought of becoming a monk, but the rigid orders, days of studying theology, and cycles of trying and failing to hold to monastic discipline were the opposite of what he wanted. On the road, Grigori was hunting more than the abstractions of theologians and the rationalizations of corrupt clergy. Like other religious teachers, seekers, and believers of his day, he rejected those things— no, he was hunting for spiritual revelation. He was looking for something earthier, the crossroads where the work of God 
met people in their ordinary life. And in that quest, he had lots of examples to ponder. Here's Dr. Coleman once again. Ordinary people, peasants, lower class people in the cities, often did things differently from how the priests would have liked them to do things. They had local sites of pilgrimage that were not necessarily approved by the powers that be. Local communities would often have, for example, icons that they regarded as miraculous that had not been officially approved. Official approval was never Grigori's goal. From the time he had gone to the monastery to seek wisdom from Macquarie, rather than the monks, it's clear that he was more interested in the faith of peasants than those in power. And Grigori's journey to find answers outside the walls of the church started in a place that was more promising than most. After all, he was in Siberia. And in Rasputin's day, that meant that there was a certain independence to the people whom he met. Back in the 17th century, the official Orthodox Church began to to, to modernize and it began to reform and try to standardize religious practice. And this was very upsetting to many Orthodox believers because, as I, as I just mentioned, right Orthodoxy means right practice. And the physical practice, the way that one worships, is considered to be critical to reaching salvation. And so in the late 17th century, you have large numbers of people who left the church and became known, dubbed as the old believers. It was illegal to be an old believer, and so many of them fled to Siberia and to the farther reaches of the empire. And through all his encounters, the trials with enemies and the comforts of friends, visiting shrines, debating with monks, and rubbing shoulders with old believers— Grigory Rasputin started to harness his idea of what it meant to be human. Eventually, his steps did return home. His daughter remembered one day when a bearded man, who seemed like a traveling peddler, slowly made his way to their door. She didn't recognize her father until he spoke in his familiar voice. He had been gone from his home and family for two years. They found him a changed man. His daughter Maria would later write that he had greatly aged, He took on suffering and fasted, sometimes making his family share in long hours of prayer, kneeling on the ground, and even beating his head against the earth. The stories in his hometown began to change. The boy who had been a drunken creep, he had taken on something new. He had grown. He was different now. And alongside the deep suspicions against him, a sort of curiosity began to rise up. As his daughter would say, Grigori began to inspire Not just suspicion, but wonder. The town scoundrel had marched away in the dust, and they were starting to whisper that he had come back a holy man. By the first years after 1900, Rasputin had something new in his Siberian town. He had a following. It was a place of contradictions. Siberia was a part of the Russian Empire, yes, In fact, it was in many ways the place where the empire drew its power. On the map, it was marked out as a treasure trove of precious resources, especially of animal pelts, and most of all, the sable. Expedition after expedition was sent across the mountains into the vast expanse of land in search of that wealth. 
And the scale at which that wealth flooded back was enormous. The Fox, Sable, and Martin furs that came back to the center of the empire amounted to a full-scale fur rush. For a nation with no natural gold or silver to draw up from the earth itself, it was the lethal harvest of this living wealth that built the imperial power. All the same, the vast expanse of land separated from the capital by the Ural Mountains was far from empty. When a Cossack mercenary marched in with the soldiers under his command at the end of the 1500s, he found a Mongol kingdom, and he smashed it with musket fire. The clash became known as the Conquest of Siberia, despite the fact that exploring the rest of the massive territory, let alone crushing its people, would be the brutal work of centuries. Year by year, more towns and villages to the east had been gripped by the empire and forced to pay tribute in furs and pelts to Moscow. At least, that was the idea. But even as the Russian Empire grew in power, it still fell short of truly controlling the lands on the other side of the mountains. Messages, military marches, and the discipline of sharp-edged steel all took years to transmit from the empire's central cities to the farthest reaches of Siberia. But that made it attractive to a whole different sort of people. Mercenaries, traders, and ruthless explorers set their sights on Siberia. They saw it as an opportunity to enrich themselves out from under the eye of the czars. And over time, it gave them a reputation. Crime was rampant. But we're not talking about petty theft. We're talking about mercenaries and traders who rigged the game, resorting to robbery, murder, bribery, and extortion. Crime lords dealing in fur, ivory, and human lives demanded gifts for themselves and extracted harsh levies from the people under their power. For example, if you were a native man, you were expected to hand over somewhere between 1 and 10 prime sable pelts each year. And that's before any extra gifts were demanded at gunpoint by the violent man who got himself appointed as your local official. Not that Moscow didn't see some part of the problem. On the record, agents of the czar and territorial governors were banned from scooping up the land's wealth for their own gain, or from torturing the local people to force more fur from the land. But as long as a steady stream of sable was flowing back over the mountains, who was going to stop them? It was a distance and a rocky divide that made Siberia a frontier. And one historian notes the difference between imperial rule before and after the czars. The Mongols, he writes, understood that ruined people could not pay tribute. Under the czars, Russian frontiersmen showed no such forbearance. They came to plunder. If we're more familiar with America's Wild West, well, that's only because for Americans, it's closer to home. Russia's Wild East wasn't all that different when it came to the way the powers of the Russian Empire thought about the land that stretched away in great plains and rocky mountains from the seat of their society. By Rasputin's day, things had begun to change, though. Increasingly, farms replaced the hunting grounds where the sable had been slaughtered. And if there was one thing Siberia would never run out of, it was land. So more and more people ran to the frontier, not just for wealth, but also for independence. Not just the freedom to build fortunes far from the Tsar's hand, but also to practice religious faith out of the Tsar's reach. Siberia, you see, was in some ways a place of religious freedom. Here's Heather Coleman again. 
Russian religion was different east of the Urals in Siberia. You have much more old belief, much more religious sectarianism, because the area east of the Urals was a place where religious dissenters fled in the early modern period to get away from the power of the state. There's a kind of a frontier atmosphere. The official church infrastructure was much less developed. We shouldn't exaggerate this. In, in Western Siberia, we have ancient dioceses, but there's, there's very little by way of seminary education and, and so on. So, so certainly the church has much more trouble regulating religious practice just because of distances and variety east of the Urals. Yes, the government sponsored settlers, but these approved homesteaders made a place for themselves and founded their towns alongside runaway serfs, craftsmen, religious dissenters, revolutionaries, disgraced aristocrats, and criminal exiles. When exiles arrived in Siberia, though, they sometimes found themselves in a strange position. At home in Western Russia, they were dangerous criminals. In Siberia, They were told that as educated and literate men, they were made government officials. Of course, I can't help seeing hints of the history of Australia in that particular move. Like Australia, and like America's Great Plains, Siberia was a place of immense size and beauty. It was also the stage on which human greed and violence had played out for centuries. The counterforces of fortune hunting and families seeking a place to practice their religion in peace pulled Siberia in different directions— and brought up sons who clothed themselves in contradictions. Simplicity, yet cunning. Charm, yet viciousness. Devotion, yet greed. Men, like Grigory Rasputin. The steam rose up between them from their cups of tea. Grigory sat with the Father Superior of the Seven Lakes Monastery and a group of his theology students, The two men were talking about Rasputin's plans and the places he intended to go on his next trip. Rasputin mentioned that his next journey would take him to the capital. The Father Superior would later remember thinking to himself that the city would ruin the Siberian peasant. But what happened next was the thing that convinced him Grigory Rasputin was filled with divine power. Grigory looked into the man's eyes and seemed to read his thoughts. The city wouldn't ruin him, he said. After all, He went with the power of God on his side. After that encounter, the monastery's father superior became one of Grigori's biggest supporters. His word carried some weight in the nearby city of Kazan, and when Grigori stopped there, he took the city by storm. His bold preaching was shored up by well-developed confidence, road-hardened independence, and an ignorance of social niceties. And it was a smash hit. He didn't hold back from speaking bluntly, even to the highest church leaders in the city. Challenging the father superior of the monastery was only the least of it, and word got around. Soon people from across Kazan were coming to him for help, for comfort, and for advice. And the stories came back out with them. Stories of miraculous healing, of burdens lifted, of a powerful teacher whose words cut to the bone. Other, more unsettling stories circulated too about the way he treated the women who came to hear his teaching or for healing. He was seen holding their hands, kissing women in public, going with them to bathhouses. In later years, it was even reported that he was found laying in bed with women who came to him for spiritual teaching. And there was the way he talked, 
Yes, he was playful with just about everyone, but with women, well, the nicknames he came up with were less creative and more suggestive. Apparently, the love he received from God only went so far in satisfying his hunger. With men, too, he was known to be what we might call tasteless and insolent. But it's hard to feel anything but a creeping disgust at the whispered stories that began about how he translated his spiritual influence into sexual coercion. He wouldn't be the first, and he was far from the last. But it's mystifying all the same that these early stories could grow right alongside his reputation as a mystic. Maybe it lent his reputation an element of risque danger. Maybe it made him a bad boy of the road. But of course, even his increasing disregard for the sexual boundaries of the people around him was wrapped in the language of spirituality. And it was this language and this teaching that he used not just to convince the women around him to follow his lead, but also to convince the spiritual leaders in Kazan that not only was he not violating church teachings, but that in fact his relationships with women were an expression of divine love, not only pure, but even purifying. For one, he convinced the Father Superior of the monastery, just outside the city. In fact, when they sat down together to talk theology, Rasputin won him over. And soon enough, they were friends. Of course, that could be because of who else Rasputin was close to in the city. One story says that what brought him to Kazan in the first place was the wealthy widow of a merchant who was grieving the death of her husband. Rasputin would have had his reasons to get close to her. Some lingering legends recount that Grigori was a paid escort on her own pilgrimages. It may have even been through her that he met the head of monasteries and the archimandrite of the city as well. And no doubt, it pays to have wealthy and powerful friends, all the better if they carry the enormous authority of the Russian church. That seems to have been one of the lessons Rasputin learned on the road. Interestingly enough, his time wandering among peasants seems to have solidified his belief in the divine order of the Tsarist regime. For Rasputin, it became clear. To honor God, everyone should stay in their place. Of course, if you were a wealthy merchant or an archimandrite, well, it could be nice to hear these things said right into your ear. And from a peasant, no less. If that came with some rude jokes and maybe a few unseemly encounters on the side, well, that could be excused. After all, what do you expect from a peasant? No one seems to have understood this dynamic, with all its limitations, opportunities, and blind spots, as well as Rasputin did himself. But he wasn't going to stay in Kazan. No, he was going to go further. He was going to go to St. Petersburg. Parsing Rasputin is no simple task. But a century of legends has sent generations of people looking for answers, and some of them have started by trying to dissect each and every part of Grigory's life. His family name is no exception. Even in his own day, some people were saying that the name Rasputin came from the Russian word Rasputnik. After all, it means depraved, and what could be more fitting for the man? At least in the eyes of his enemies— Surely, it was a label he took as a young man for his predatory habits in his hometown. Or maybe it was his father who was a predator, and he inherited the name and the habits both. Not to mention that for years, the rumor mill went round the clock trying to pin the label of horse thief on both Grigori and his father. A terrible accusation in any frontier community. Most historians, though, would see this as idle speculation. 
After all, anyone who has looked at the records can see the name in Siberia going back into the 1600s. And in her father's defense, Maria Rasputin says that nearly half of the people in their hometown and the surrounding regions had the name in their family tree. So if the name meant scoundrel, well, it was a widespread accusation. But there's a more likely root. It seems that Rasputin probably comes from the Russian word Rasputa, which meant something more like crossroads. And for people who built their town along a carriage route between major cities, well, that makes sense. But there's a deeper and darker aspect of that heritage, too. You see, one of the historians who has studied Rasputin's life, Douglas Smith, notes that there were some odd beliefs about crossroads that were still hanging around in Grigori's day. Going back a long way, it's not like crossroads were just a neutral kind of geography. No, they were a place of meetings, and not least a place of spiritual encounter, where humans were in danger of coming face-to-face with a spirit traveling from a different, darker place. A place where the spirits you met could be evil. We can't make too much of it. If the name Rasputin refers to a crossroads, well, what did that have to say about Grigori? Maybe not too much. But hindsight lets us see a man who straddled worlds, who unintentionally was part of toppling them. With his road leading him to the capital, Grigory was about to cross paths with the most powerful people in the Russian Empire. And his fateful meeting with the Romanovs would give us the host of legends and rumors that we still know today. But when Grigory Rasputin set his sights on St. Petersburg, he wasn't the only one. After all, the first years of the 1900s would see Nicholas and Alexandra facing opponents on every field, both foreign and domestic. War and revolution came to the empire, and before the year 1905 was out, the land ruled by the czars would already be slipping from one world into the next. So it wasn't just Grigory Rasputin whose life was at a crossroads. It was the Romanov family as well. And in fact, the entirety of Imperial Russia. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. When the crowd arrived at the palace, the infantry opened fire and the cavalry charged. It was a massacre. Over 1,000 of the marchers were killed and 2,000 were left screaming in the street. Nicholas wrote in his diary, How sad. To the rest of Russia, though, it was more than sad. It was an outrage. They called it their own Bloody Sunday, and they rallied to the call. Riots and bombs exploded across the empire. Over 1,000 government officials were killed. Grand Duke Sergei, who had married Alexandra's older sister, was hit by a blast that scattered his carriage over the roofs of the surrounding buildings. Was it enough to challenge the power of the czars? Nicholas's sister continued to see the Romanov way. It was, she said, a lack of authority. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com slash unobscured. 
And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>